we have been looking at uh, the idea that becoming God's people, uh, being enrolled in this historical privileged people of God, which during Old Testament times, it focused mostly on the Jewish people, yet there were believing remnant from among the Gentiles. There was Rahab, there was Melchizedek, there was Job, and and others like them. But God's focus on his privileged people was on Israel during those Old Testament times and, and during this church age that though there is a remnant from the Jewish people, his focus has been mostly on us Gentiles. Um, thank his mercy for that. And, and we'll see today kind of how it expands for us in, in showing us the future of him moving his focus back on to his people Israel as his privileged people again, I believe. And so chapter 11 has been unfolding for us this idea that of becoming God's people is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. Uh, imagine, if you will, that if you walked into the uh, Congress, okay? You walked into the House of Representatives and you had some papers that you had written down. And you're like, excuse me, uh, I need your attention. I have a bill, I have a law that I need you to pass. And, and your thought would be, what you do here affects me. What you do here is about me, okay? It involves me, and I need you to pass this law. But they would look at you, and they'd probably say, it may be about you, and it may be involve you, but this is bigger than you. The, the, the United States is bigger than you. The process is bigger than you. And so in the same way, that's what the, the sense that I've gotten and I've, I've hoped to communicate to you from chapter 11, and that is becoming the privileged people of God is bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It involves us. It's about us in some ways, but it's not all about us. And, and this, these are important words. These are important passages of Scripture for us to understand in our culture because we are increasingly a culture that wants nothing to do with God unless we can be told somehow he's about us. Completely. All about us. And these verses, in some ways, we kind of feel left out of them. I don't know about you. But it's, it's showing us that his privileged people, having been with about Israel and being about the church age and what I believe in the future will be about Israel, it's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. So, so we've been looking at this in terms of the idea of, of the history of God working with mankind from his creation and his fall and redemption up to the point that, that we will be all with him, fully redeemed, free of sin, walking with him in the cool of the day again. Fully redeemed. That, like that history, as it plays out, is like walking along a mountain range, right? And, and imagine like the Old Testament times leads up to this plateau that's different geographically than everything that's been around it. And, and, and that plateau that we've talked about is like the church age that we live in, okay? And what we've been taught in Romans 11 and, and 9 through 11 is, is kind of giving us visions off of that plateau 
of what it has looked like to be the privilege of God prior to the church age and, and how us as the church being the privileged people of God now has to do with that and, and how we can learn from his relationship with Israel. <coughs> and we've learned from verses 11 through 25 when it's talked about Israel's stumble, it hasn't been purposeful, it's been reversible. It should humble us as followers of Christ during this church age and cause us to live with anticipation. Because that plateau, as we move linearly across that, it comes to an end. And, and, and the path seems to pick up much more similarly than it did prior to it. Which I believe he picks up with his people Israel again. So standing on that plateau, we're soaking in the view. We should be responding with awe and wonder. And that's what leads us up to what we will understand as, as the response to Romans 1 through 11 in verses 32 through 36 or, or 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Staring off of, uh, of this plateau that we live on and, and to be seeing His big plan throughout redemptive history should lead us to that place of standing in awe and wonder. As the picture that I've tried to depict on the screen there should give us an awe of wonder from that perspective that we've lived on. But it's hard for us because for the last 2,000 years, the church has been what it is. And it is where God has been working. So we need his word to give us that perspective on being the privileged people of God. So a sweeping vision of the present and the future regarding Israel in the church is given to us in verse 25. Where he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so soaking in this view of the future family of God involving the nation of Israel, we, we kind of, I think we come to the edge of this plateau here with this description of a, there's been a hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, which we're not there yet. And then we're given a sweeping view of what the future looks like. We pick up in verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy for god has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all 
Now understand that last final statement here is kind of summing up being the privileged people of God, what it means over what he has unpacked in verse chapters 9 through 11. Being the privileged people of God, being a part of his forever family, one day will be about a recognition that I, every single one of us, every single one of us from every tongue, tribe, nation, will stand before him and recognize, I was disobedient, you were disobedient, you were disobedient. We were locked up in our disobedience. But God showed me mercy. That's how I'm here. Whether from Jew or Gentile, Israel or the church. So we're looking at God's cure for the conceited Christian. And, and this isn't, you know, that we can be conceited in a lot of different ways. Understand that in the culture of the Roman church there, we've talked a little bit about this. They were made up of Jews and they were made up of Gentiles. At one point in time, the emperor of Rome cast out all the Jews from Rome. And so the Gentile contingency in the, church of, the churches in Rome grew in their position and grew in their knowledge and grew in their numbers. And so when the Gentiles rejoined, the Jews rejoined them, there was this tension there. And so much of chapter 12 is going to reflect their love, what they should, how they should be serving one another, how they should be functioning as a church together. And, and so much of the book of Romans leading up to this is, has been to help them to navigate through that tension with the gospel. And so the conceitedness of the church in their thoughts about the nation of Israel is what's being dealt with here. And his cure is, is that knowledge that he shares, lest you be wise in your own sight, or as the NIV and the Holman Christian says, conceited in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, he tells us. Now, just as a little bit of review, that mystery Uh, coming into the New Testament from the Old Testament, the mystery was what was unfolded thus far was the fact that Gentiles were going to be welcomed into God's family. Okay? And the original mystery was simply the inclusion of these Gentiles. As we looked at in, in uh, Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then, then this point in the discussion in Romans, the mystery involved the future massive inclusion into God's privileged people of the Jews again. From what was a hardened people group. So standing from where we are in the church age, it's more fully disclosing what was a mystery at that time, and that's God still got big plans for his people Israel. And this knowledge was to help the Roman church not be conceited. Gentiles toward Jews, Jews toward Gentiles, and, and all of them as believers towards the nation of Israel. It was to keep Jew and Gentiles from being conceited, as I believe any biblical view of the sovereignty of God in salvation of people should do, to humble them, to humble us. To stop us from saying to ourselves, 
I must be so wise to have chosen to follow Christ. Or to say, I don't, just don't see what's wrong with those people who don't believe Christ is the Savior of the world. What's wrong with them? Are, you know, are, are, is they, do they have a screw loose? Or say, well, it's plain to me, but, you know, I guess I always more, was more spiritual than the people around me. The sovereignty of God in salvation is, has been proclaimed on a, on a historical level of all of redemptive history in Romans 9 through 11 should bring us to a humble place to realize we were all locked up in disobedience and we were all shown mercy. That's the only way that we know Christ is our Savior. So God's forever family, we see, will be diverse in the future. And we see those in the verses 25 through 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now he addresses them as brothers. He's talking to the church as a whole. He's talking to believing Jews, believing Gentiles as a part of the Roman church. And he's talking to them about the hardening, which we talked about as a deafness, a blindness that has come over the nation of Israel to the gospel. He talks about it being partial, as we've talked about. It's partial in the sense that it's not all Jews. There are Jewish people that make up what Paul talks about as being a remnant of the Jewish people who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. So it's partial in the sense that it's not every single Jew that is not a part of the church. And it's also partial in the sense that it's, it's temporary. We've been told in verse 25 that until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in to God's privileged people, the nation of Israel as a nation has been hardened toward the gospel. And so, so that's kind of review a little bit of where he's taken us here. And, and this fullness of the Gentiles, if you recall, um, I believe it is talked about in Daniel Chapter 9 in this, what's known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Weeks being uh, a week being a group of seven years where he says in 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, Daniel. And as you play through those 70 weeks, 69 of those seven, of those 70, seven, okay, of those 70 weeks, which is seven years each, 69 of those 70 weeks have played out. And there's one week remaining for God to deal with Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. And I believe that's the week of tribulation. I believe he deals with his people again in contingency or after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and we as a church are out of here. That's why we don't pop up in the book of Revelation. Now, there's a remnant of Gentiles that will be saved, just as there was a remnant of Gentiles that were, were saved in the Old Testament times, and there's a remnant of Jews that are saved during the church age. Uh, you don't have to be a Jew to be saved during the tribulation time, but the church isn't there. But as I said, you don't have to believe that. 
Um, but now there is a Gentile focus. Just as there is a Jewish focus before and after the church age. I'm, I'm just going to touch a little bit on this idea of all Israel will be saved because that's the explanation here or that's the, the statement here. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay? And um, I have in the back under the west window uh, four pages of um, paragraphs from different writers having to deal with, dealing with this statement, all Israel will be saved. So if you would like some in-depth coverage of that, it's here. Um, or it's in the back there, and you can pick that up. But understand that, recall from earlier in chapter 11 of Romans, just as there's talk here of a fullness of the Gentiles, there was talk of a full inclusion of Israel. Once Israel reached its full inclusion. Uh, and so just as the fullness of the Gentiles is referring to all those Gentiles that God has planned to bring into his body of believers, there's discussion of the full inclusion of those Jews that God has planned to bring into his privileged people. And so have that in the back of your mind when he talks about all of Israel. But first, I want to share with you, uh, I believe that the Israel talked about here is the Jewish nation of Israel. I don't believe that it is a spiritualized term for Israel that would refer to all of God's privileged people, both Israel and the church, and things like that. That would be replacement theology. That would be the theology of the Catholic Church, the theology of Reformed churches that, in my opinion, didn't reform that enough from the Catholic doctrine and the, and the doctrine of some churches that spawned off of the Presbyterian church, uh, that Israel has been replaced by the church. Uh, writers like John Calvin said, I extend the word Israel to include all the people of God. I don't agree with that. I don't think scripture teaches that. This is speaking of Israel as a nation. So it's not spiritualizing now and saying, well, all of the spiritual Israel will finally be saved. Um, the all here, uh, well, let me, let me say, back, remember this whole discussion of Israel and the church and the privileged people of God spawned off of the question in chapter 9, verse 6, have the promises of God failed? Has the word of God failed? Look at Israel. Okay? And, and the statement was made, no, they haven't, because not all who descend from Israel is Israel. And so, in some ways, he's been explaining ever since chapter 9, verse 6, what he means by that. And so taking all of that into account, he says, so what I, that's what I mean by all Israel will be saved. So it's not physical descendants. It's not genetic descendants. It is those that God has chosen from Israel. The all here, this full inclusion, 
is all those by, that he has planned by his grace to include in his forever family. Just as, um, for instance, 1 Timothy 2 talks about be uh, praying for all men. Okay, well, does he mean, are we commanded to pray for every single person on the face of the earth? No. And the context tells us there what he means. All kinds of people. Don't, don't, have, don't stop praying for your governors, for your rulers, for your people in authority. Pray for all kinds of people. And in the same way here, all doesn't mean every single Israelite will be saved. All that God intends that are spiritual descendants of Israel or, or that are not spiritual descendants, but are descendants of Israel. I'm confusing this. Read the paper. And they are saved not as a politically or nationally, they're saved spiritually. It's talking about their regeneration, their reconciliation. Those who will be saved out of Israel, all that God intends, will be saved spiritually. Will be a part of that forever family. Verse 27 explains from quoting the prophecies of spiritual renewal of Israel from Isaiah 59 and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And thus will my covenant be with with them when I take away their sins. This is talking about salvation being brought to Israel. So I, I've experienced the benefits of diversity. We're talking about here how God's forever family will be diverse. It will be people from the church age. It will be Old Testament saints. It will be saints saved during the end times. And, and I personally have experienced diversity. It's so great to go on a missions trip and to see that God's, God's people, his church is, as, as a whole, is diverse. It's culturally diverse. As I'm sure Nancy would, would testify to that, of the beautiful worship that she's a part of in South Sudan and other places. I've benefited from living in diverse places, uh, seeing how America is made up of different landscapes, different personal perspectives, you know, between Tennessee and Chicago and South Carolina and Wisconsin and South Dakota. I've benefited from the diversity of adoption and realizing, you know, uh, two of my kids think like me and two of my kids don't. wonder why that is. Well, there's diverse ways of looking at the world. And the body of Christ, the, the forever family of Christ is going to benefit from that. And we, the church, are not the pinnacle of God's forever family. The forever family of God with whom we will worship him for all of eternity, will be made up, as I said, from Old Testament saints, from church-age saints, from saints that come to Christ during the end times. And all of this should land us praising Him, as Romans 11 leads to, for His wisdom and His grace and His knowledge, for allowing us to simply get on board with being his, a part of His privileged people, His forever family. We see also that God's forever family, it's complicated in the present, especially having to do with Israel. He says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, just as through this chapter, he's not speaking of individual people. Okay? Um, 
he's speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole, as being how they can be both enemies of God and yet beloved because of the covenants. Nationally, they are objects of wrath. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As a whole, they are enemies because of their rejection of the gospel. Their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, as the final sacrificial lamb whom all the sins of the world were laid on and the penalty was paid. And that through our receiving him as our Savior, as is illustrated through baptism, we actually join into his payment for sins and we're actually raised with him to a new life. And as regards the gospel, the nation of Israel, because of their hardening, is saying, no, my Messiah was not sacrificed. My Messiah is not the lamb. You see there? And so as regards the gospel, because of the hardening of their hearts and their rejection of the gospel, and this is passive, God considers them his enemies. God has enmity toward them as enemies. So this is not saying, even though they've rejected the gospel, individual Jews get a pass and will be saved. Nationally, they're in a place of rejection. But nationally, God remembers them. We, we, yeah, we'll get into it. Nationally, they are objects of love. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So regarding the gospel, they're enemies, but regarding the God's sovereign choice, they're loved and determined to make, he's determined to make them an object of his saving grace as a nation. We also see that they are benefactors of God's faithfulness. He says, for the gifts. Why is the reason? What's the explanation of what he's saying here? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, if I go out of here, I have a driver's license. But if I go out of here and drive any way I darn well please, the authority of the state of Indiana has a right to revoke that license for me. But see, God has all authority, even though he has all authority, even though he has all sovereignty, even though as the creator and the author of life, he has the authority of being the author. His faithfulness causes him to choose to not revoke his promises to Israel as a nation. He has made them irrevocable. The picture of this is when Abraham, I wasn't intending to go here, but maybe it won't draw us away too much. The picture of this is in the Old Testament times when, Abraham, when God made covenant with Abraham. And they took the pieces of the animals, as was the custom of that day, and they cut these animals in half, and they laid them on two sides. And as the custom of that day, the covenant was, the two people that walked between those pieces of animals were covenanting to each other that they were going to keep that covenant. And it was based on the performance, if you will, of the both of them. And the warning had something to do with these mutilated animals that they were walking through. 
But what happens in that situation? And it says, and a great fear came over Abraham. Because he knows this situation. But then it says that God caused a sleep to fall over him. And the Shekinah presence of God came down and he alone passed between those animals. And that is what was going on. And theologically, we have explanation of here that his gifts and his callings to Israel are irrevocable. They are not dependent on the performance of Israel. Now, if an individual Jewish person is rejecting the gospel, they are an enemy of God. See how it's complicated? I appreciate you sitting through the explanation of it too. It's reiterating God's credibility. It's on the line in regard to his faithfulness. Remember that this whole discussion started in chapter 9 with, has God's word failed? Or actually the statement was, it's not as if God's word has failed, is it? Have his promises just stopped? No, and he says, not all descendants of Israel are Israel. And it's been explained for three chapters, and I won't explain it again. We're told in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We were told about these gifts that Israel has in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God does not pull those away from them. But, and this is just my reading into it here, I wonder if the difference between someone coming to Christ and not from the Jewish people has to do with the calling. What brings them into a saving relationship with God. Imagine, if you will, a king uh, coming into his prison full of deserved convicts convicted under his laws and pointing out and saying, you will be a child of mine. You will be a child of mine. You will be a child of mine. Calling them to himself. And that irrevocable nature of it is that they're secure in that position even though as it plays out throughout the rest of their life, they don't know what they're doing. They don't deserve that position. They're not up to snuff. Chapter 11 appears to focus on the same sovereign work of God to glorify Him in His future with the nation of Israel. And for us, our calling is a part of our being spiritually apart of Abraham's offspring, as Galatians talks about. We've seen this idea before of God's calling being of what it's up to, not a matter of works. Romans 9.11 told us, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, talking about God choosing Jacob over Esau, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, he, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls. That's the purpose of his election, that it's not about works, but it's because of him who calls, being God. Verses 9-24 of Romans 11 went on and says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. His gifts and his calling are never revocable. I believe that humility for all of eternity, humility and thankfulness for God calling us to salvation will be experienced by his forever family. And we're told next that we all have a story of God having moved us from disobedience to mercy. God's forever family will have all moved from disobedience to mercy. We read that in verses 30 through 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So this is looking back for <clears throat> now a third time of this cycle of some, what some call this chain of blessings, okay? That, that we were under, as Gentiles, we were held under disobedience while they received mercy during Old Testament times. And now we, uh, as, as the nation of Israel is hardened, we are receiving mercy even as they are disobedient. And the plan is that, that through our mercy, they would then be shown mercy again. You see those three phases there as we've been kind of looking at. Here is something that's chilling to me about the terms here. The term disobedience in the original language is this, apatheo. What English term does that sound like is related to? Apathetic. Apathetic. You were at one time apathetic to God, but now have received mercy. Because of their apathy. So they now have now been apathetic. In order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. God has consigned all at some point to apathy. In order to have mercy on all. This apatheo means to not allow oneself to be persuaded. Not to not comply with to refuse or withhold belief. It speaks of a stubborn, stiff-necked attitude toward God. It's what Jesus uses when he says uh, to Nicodemus in John three thirty six: whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey, whoever is apathetic to the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. 
If we can reference back. This reminds me of what we looked at um, earlier in Romans 9 regarding the olive tree. And, we've, and again, um, we keep in mind with all of this that this is talking about, oh, I'm sorry, not, not Romans 9, Romans 11. Early in Romans 11 regarding the olive tree, remember here that they're talking about people groups as a nation, people groups. This is not about individuals. This is about God moving in people groups. And remember the warning there. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Speaking of the church right now, may, the, the danger, that conceitedness that we're in danger of. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. People group of America people group of the Gentiles, people group of the next generation of the church in America, that warning still stands over us as a people group. Now, this is not talking about individuals who have received salvation, have a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is indwelling them, and somehow he's going to break them off. But just as the nation of Israel was broken off, he says, be careful. Gentiles, be careful, Americans. And what's haunting for me is this term for disobedience because I think that resonates with us. When he says, consigned to disobedience, and it's talking about apathy. I I, I have a feeling this is what we're seeing in the church in the West where you got to have just comfortable enough chairs, just the right temperature, just the right worship music, just the right lighting to get people to show up on Sunday morning. And every generation gets more apathetic than the last. And I believe we are watching the church in America possibly being broken off of the olive tree. Something to think about. We'll revisit this. All of God's forever family will have moved from apathetic disobedience to receiving mercy from God. We'll have seen the fact that grace and mercy are held in contrast to works of salvation. We've seen that. We saw it in Romans 9.16. That it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. We saw it earlier in verse of chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is not by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. I'm sorry. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We've all moved from disobedience to mercy. Not from disobedience to doing good stuff that got God to notice us. Okay? I don't know a lot about baseball. But I know if you're going to get to home plate, you've got to get off a third. 
And what we've seen throughout these chapters is what's been hammered home to us, uh, like statements like, so why is it that Israel missed the mark? And he says, because they thought they were going to pursue it by works rather than by faith. And what we've seen throughout here is if you're going to get into a relationship with God, like getting on the home plate, you've got to let go of works, like you've got to get off the third base. And how he's describing it here is that every person, God has consigned all to disobedience. Any person that will be a part of God's forever family will have moved from apathetic disobedience to mercy. Just like Luke said this morning, I realized I couldn't get there by being a good person. Here we see God's mercy is described not just being apart from religious works, but God's mercy is also designed to come in the context of our disobedience. So do you see why somebody sitting in the church still with this concept of just got to be good enough, just got to be good enough, just got to be good enough? They're actually still apathetic to the gospel because the gospel begins with All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In terms of what's being stated here, the ESV Study Bible says, salvation history is structured to feature God's great mercy. God saved the Gentiles when when one would expect only the Jews to be saved. But in the future, he will amaze all by his grace by saving the Jews so that it will be clear that everyone's salvation is by mercy alone. That's the explanation given to us in verse 32. He's consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Speaking specifically, all those Jews right now, save the remnant, have been consigned to disobedience. And that was our experience, just as he says in those earlier verses of this, as you can see on the screen. And this term consigned means to be imprisoned. It means to be confined, enclosed. Guess what? You don't open the door from the inside. It's a term that's used in Luke 5, 6 to describe a whole load of fish being consigned into a net and pulled onto a boat. Picture is that of apathetic, unbelieving people thinking that they are the masters of their faith actually being locked away in their apathy. Whereas the writer Cranfield says, they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy releases them. Another writer says, this has been the argument of this letter As in the first three chapters, Paul demonstrated that all human beings are sinful, guilty, and without excuse. And then in verse 321, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from works. From that verse 321 onward, he continues, unfolded the way of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. This human disobedience is the prison from which divine mercy liberates us. 
or as the expositor's commentary says, this is the crowning feature of the discussion. The outcome of everything that chapters 9 through 11 have been pointing to. The same mercy that has overtaken the Gentiles who were formerly disobedient will finally overtake the now disobedient Israel. I've shared these song lyrics before with you, but you know, when they're one of your favorite songs from one of your favorite writers, it pops up again. It's uh, the song Thank Someone by Andrew Peterson. And he's talking about that forever family that we're all going to be with finally one day. He says, And when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. If you've ever wondered, why did God let the fall happen? Why did God let sin into this world? I mean, I'm not in the mind of God. I don't think that's really answered completely for us. But I think that's part of it. It's It's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but instead to have been, been broken by sin. Locked up in disobedience. Locked up in apathy. But then to be redeemed by love. That's what God's forever family, Jew, Gentile, Old Testament, church age, end time saints, that's what we're all going to have in common. We were broken, but redeemed by love. And, And parents and individuals, um, you know, whether it be for us personally or us looking at our kids or looking at our grandkids or looking at just the course of where America is going. We need to think about this idea of this disobedience that God says all people are locked up in and when they receive his mercy, they're, they're taken out of that prison of disobedience, of apatheo. And shown mercy. And I think you see it too. This is our culture. And every generation is getting worse. More and more apathy. And I believe it's a growing disobedience of what's being talked about here. I believe, like I said, it's, it's signs that as a nation... We have the potential of being that broken off olive tree branch again that he warns us that we can become. When you see apathy in your heart, you see apathy in your children's hearts. If it requires the music to just be right, the lighting to just be right, the seating to just be perfect, for you to show up for anything involving the Lord, check your heart. This is where our nation is going. And will we just encourage it? Or will we call them to see you're locked up in your sin? That danger, that disobedience of apathy is such a dangerous thing. We should seek a renewal 
in our own hearts. I think that's where chapter 12 is going to take us. Before we go to chapter 12, the Lord's leading us to look at this. What does it mean to be no longer conformed, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? And what has God given us in His helper, the Holy Spirit, to do that? That's what we'll be looking at in the next few weeks, what that means. Let's close our eyes. Uh, bow our heads and close in prayer.